can start with the mature price now. Thank you, Bhante. I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So today is Father's Day. And uh, I've had the privilege of giving the talk on Father's Day uh, a few times over the, the last few years, you know, five or six years, however long it's been. And I've touched upon a few things, you know, the story of the Buddha and his son Rahula. I've talked about my own history in, in some regard. But I have to admit, I sometimes wonder if I'm <laughs> the right person to give a talk on Father's Day only because of, of two respects. One is that I am not a father. <laughs> I have no intention of being a father. And then also because I have a, a bit of complex history around my, my own fathers. Uh, when I was young, my parents got divorced, my mom and my dad. Which means that my, my father, my biological father, is not someone that I grew up with. He didn't raise me. He's a good man, and throughout the years we've seen each other, you know, a few times here and there every year. Little visits here and there. Nice dinner, nice chit-chat, how you doing, everything. But, you know, recently, I, uh, I would say maybe a couple months ago, I was out with him as he was taking care of my grandparents. They're quite elderly now. My grandmother uh, is in the early stages of dementia. My grandfather is having a lot of health complications, and so he was taking them for their doctor visits. And it was on the way back that my father got a phone call from probably his best friend. Uh, th this guy has been in my father's life since I was a kid, like very small, probably from, from the very beginning. And it was so weird because I realized that I hadn't actually heard my father talk to his friend on the phone as just a guy, as just a dude chit-chatting with his bro. And I realized, you know, despite him being my father, he was quite a stranger to me outside of the little chit-chat small talk we had had over the years. And I was just like, who is this guy who's next to me in the car chit-chatting with his friend, you know, on speakerphone and everything. And I was like, how weird that he has this whole other life that I have no idea about. But then I realized, too, that in the same way, he has no idea about most of my life. You know, 30-something uh, years of life that, you know, he hasn't really been a part of. A whole wealth of knowledge about me and about him that has been not shared. There's not those experiences. So he's a, he's a good man, and I'm happy he's my father, but he's not someone I really know all that well. My stepfather raised me from the age of seven onward. So we have a lot of history together. This man has seen me through all the different versions of me up until now. And because he's someone I know extremely well, and he knows me extremely well, uh, I, I can say that I have a much greater measure of him, that when he speaks on the phone with his friends, I go, yeah, there's my dad. I can recognize the sense of humor. It's much like my own. I can recognize the cadence of voice. A lot of people mistake us on the phone. 
And that also means that I was knowledgeable of, of all the, the good and bad within him. The, I could see him as a full human, the way we all are in the world, the way we can be skillful and unskillful. And so, you know, in the past I've shared a lot of the skillfulness of my stepfather and the lessons he's taught me. But there's also another side to the story that makes it complicated sometimes to talk about my past. Not to say that he's a bad man, not at all, not even a little bit. He's a good man. But because he's human, there were certain issues that arose that was a mixture between his own sense of familial responsibility, his devotion to my mom, and not really able to rec reconcile that with the deep, deep intergenerational trauma on my mother's side of the family. And for me growing up and being in the midst of that, what it meant is that when he would see that, this intergenerational trauma playing out between my mother and myself, he would either react in two ways, and both were harmful in different ways. One was to be blissfully ignorant of what was going on, and the other one was to be entirely dismissive and, uh, yeah, dismissive and um, minimizing in terms of hurt feelings. So I say that not, not in any way to, to shape anyone's experience of who my father is, my stepfather. He's a good man. But I bring this up only to highlight something very important, which is that as, as we approach life in our relationships in, interpersonally, what we have inside is also what we have to offer. Last week, when Silas was here giving his talk, one of the things that I, I loved that he highlighted is that after listening to me leading the, the metta meditation, he, he really singled in on this one issue, which is why we start with ourselves. And it is because of that very one thing I just said right now, that Whatever it is that we have inside is what we give out to the world. It's what we put out there. It's what shapes our relationships with others. Which is, I think, why uh, we work so hard on ourselves in this Buddhist path. And following the Eightfold Path, we're working on a lot of different qualities, learning to be harmless for that very reason, because of what it is that we put out there. <clears throat> because we end up receiving a lot of messages in life, and it's not just our parents, but society in general. And that can absolutely affect us as we try to function in the, in the world as adults. There's a, a story that my teacher shares about his early years as a, a Buddhist monk living in Thailand. When he was practicing there, it was during the, uh, the Vietnam War. And so even though he was in Thailand, what that meant is that like clockwork in the, in the, in the mornings, he could hear the, the planes going overhead to drop bombs. And as he was sitting there, he had um, this big sense of like, well, you know, I should really be, be doing something. And in his own sharing of the story, he never really uh, specified whether that doing something was to go out there and, and be one of the troops or to go out there and be part of any of the humanitarian aid. But there was this sense of, ah, yes, you know, I, I really should be doing something other than, than sitting here and, and meditating. You know, it, st it struck him like, ah, oh, maybe I'm being, being uh, lazy. Maybe I'm just being useless just sitting here. 
and he had to investigate inside and to see for himself, well, whose voice is that telling me this? And as he peered inside, he realized that those voices telling him that what he was doing was useless in terms of meditation, in terms of cultivation, were the voices of his own mother and father. And with that, he wasn't in any way vilifying them, but he was realizing that like, yeah, but that's not my voice. And it's not a sense of what I should be doing based off of my own standards. It's based on other people's standards coming from outside. And this wasn't a problem unique to him. He also shares how his own teacher was in this interesting position, teaching lay people how to meditate in a time when it was not popular to have people meditate in Thailand. That these lay people would come, and they would come with their parents. And their parents were elated that their, their sons and daughters were going to the temple and making merit offering robes to the monks, lighting the incense, doing all these other things. But then when it came to sitting down and doing meditation, cultivating inside, looking in, into that inner landscape and seeing what's there, and like a gardener going through the weeds and planting new seeds, that was seen as a little too much. And so my teacher's teacher had to turn to his students and say that, well, you know, with, with, without any recrimination, you can ask yourselves, well, like, what do they know? In the sense that we're the ones in this path who get to decide if this path is actually being fruitful. I say this because society lives the way it lives, out in the world, not just within our family, but in society altogether. One of the most useful things that I learned in studying psychotherapy was systems theory. That the way our family functions is often a sign of the way the family functioned for generations, but also the way society functions. And one of the things that might surprise us, if we look really closely, is that typically society is not set up to support the Dhamma, to, su to support Buddhist practice. And so it means that for those of us, especially those of us living as lay people, or even those of us living uh, you know, even if we're living as monastics, but living in places where it's not, it's not a good atmosphere for practice, we're constantly coming up against messages and feedback from others that what we're doing is not really worth it after all, that we're wasting our time, that we're uh, being selfish, or we're being uh, lazy, or we're being good for nothing. So all, all kinds of messages that, that we can take in. What that means for us is that early on in our Buddhist practice, we can really come in damaged from the world. The Buddha teaches us that life can, can be stressful. Not that life is stress, not that life is suffering, but there is a lot of stress and a lot of suffering and a lot of hurt. And when we come to the Buddhist practice seeking refuge, we often come with a lot of bruises, a lot of cuts, a lot of damage. And we need to heal, we need to soothe ourselves. In Western psychotherapy, we might say that we have to uh, reparent ourselves or self-parent ourselves. This can take many forms. And I was watching a, a video recently where what someone said was actually very helpful in, in the sense that, like, you know, be, be that support to yourself that you wish you had or to be the kind of parent that you needed. 
which for a lot of people out there I think can be a very healing message if they didn't feel that they had that kind of support, that they had someone in their corner. But when you take time to sit down and meditate and it's just you in this body, in this mind, in this heart, you have the ability to be that person in your corner. This goes back, I think, to the, the Buddha's message in terms of, of admirable friendship. You know, when he talked about himself as a teacher, he talked about himself as an admirable friend. And he continued that to the society of practitioners that he had, the whole entire Chathupadisa, that they were all admirable friends to each other, that Upasakas and Upasikas were admirable friends to each other, the monks were admirable friends to them and with, amongst themselves as a community and so on. But then there's also that internal component as well, that you try to become an admirable friend to yourself. That, to me, and I don't know if it is for you, but to me that's a very powerful message, a, a, a deep, impactful message that changed my practice. And it, it's something that can be taken for granted or completely missed out entirely for lots of Buddhists even. Recently, I was, I was uh, having a discussion with someone who is in the beginning stages of um, like, a, like a meditation facilitator program, someone who's in the business of, of starting to teach people how to meditate. And I was sharing with this woman after this meditation session that I sat in on, uh, this, this practice that exists in the, the forest tradition amongst some of the ajans, which is when you wake up first thing in the morning, you start with metta. And then the last thing you do as you're falling asleep, more metta. And the woman responded, oh, wow, you know, that's such a great way to, to start in the end, end of the day is to, to start, you know, with like all this, you know, uh, love for everyone else, all this goodwill for, for everyone else on the outside. You're, you're thinking about everyone. And I said, well, yeah, that, that's, that's true. But, you know, the, the really important part uh, is, is to begin with yourself that when we do any of the Brahma-vihara practices, whether it's goodwill, whether it's compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, we start here. And it comes back to that same message that I, I said before, which is whatever it is that you have inside is what you end up sharing with the world. So if your intention really is to have these Brahma-viharas manifest in your activities, in your interactions with others, interpersonally, with your relationships, with your family, with your friends, with your co-workers, your acquaintances, all the way down through the practice when we talk about those who harbor any animosity towards us. The way we talk to ourselves is often the way we talk to others. We don't think about it that way, but it's true if we investigate closely enough. So we start with ourselves because, one, we need that healing. Most of us, I would say, need it in some capacity. You know, regardless of how idyllic our upbringing was, society we learn through the Buddhist teachings is rife with stress. You know, the way the, the way the world functions for any realm of existence, the heaven realms all the way down to the hell realms, there is always some measure of stress, something that gives rise to us some type of lamentation, some desire for things to be different than they are. So we start within because we want to make sure that we are harmless, blameless. I keep coming back to that message for an important reason. But even though we want to make sure that we're harmless and blameless with others, 
it's only going to have its most final form, its, its most completeness, if we're able to do that for ourselves. Can we really be an admirable friend to ourselves? Can we be that teacher, that guide, that, that guardian that we need to look in and champion ourselves, our cause, our cause in developing this Eightfold Path? Which I know might strike others as strange because, you know, we often talk about, about no self or not self in, in Buddhism. And so the idea that you would work on your own self-image in the practice seems counterintuitive to recognizing this whole no self idea. Uh, which is something that, that I uh, disagree with, that particular stance. I, I think that a lot of people who end up needing healing and then learn a concept like no self and try to apply it immediately uh, end up uh, maybe causing some internal harm to their minds by doing it that way by looking at it as a universal maxim that will then soothe the pain. It's like, well, the pain that happened didn't happen to anyone, right? But the pain happened. The hurt happened. What we might do instead is, in starting with ourself, in not just the application of, of the Eightfold Path in terms of developing qualities like insight, but at the Brahma Viharas as well, goodwill, compassion, we can recognize that we can recognize that this self that we have in the practice is not unskillful that everything that we do has gradations in the path what that means is that we look at not-self as a strategy, the way the Buddha intended as a kind of perception. In the same way that my teacher was talking about his experiences in Thailand as a young monk and looking within and seeing what voices were there, our usual mode of being is thinking that every thought that comes into our mind is our thought. We claim it. We take it as ours, even if they're hurtful. Someone makes a comment towards us, and we internalize it. We make it our thought. And this can be done for both good and bad. Someone can tell us we're very beautiful, and we take that inside, and we go, yes, I am very beautiful. Someone tells us we're very smart, and we take that in, yes, I am. I, me, I'm smart. But then we also do it the other way around. You know, someone tells us we're lazy, we're worthless, we're not good, we're bad, we're a bad person. And we can internalize that as well. I say this because I, I speak from my, my own experience. If I seemed lost in thought a moment ago, it's because this is something that is from my own life. And so when I start sharing it, I can get, I can see the memories bubbling up. I've had my own messages about being bad that I internalized so deeply for a, a, a large portion of my life, that I constantly had to check in with others. Am I a good person? Am I a good person? Am I good? And it would be those closest to me. My own wife has had to hear this even over the years, even as I've been practicing. Even though I can tell myself that like, hey, 
I'm developing this path, I'm putting it into practice, right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. I'm doing these things, I'm living in such a way. And sometimes all it takes is for one person to look at me the wrong way or to act as if they don't like me. And then I might turn to my wife and ask her, am I a good person? And she, tells, she looks at me and she, she looks confused and she says, yes, you're a good person. And yet sometimes there's still that, that measure of doubt. Well, where does that come from? Is that my voice? I don't think so. But it's certainly one that I've taken as I, me, mine. I've decided that it's my voice. And I don't need to. Part of the training is recognizing that we can make that choice. We can look at something like that, that kind of thought perception that bubbles up, and we can examine it and say, hmm, this thought is not constant. It's not reliable. It's not helping me in the practice. It's not helping me develop good qualities. It's not easing my suffering. It certainly doesn't help me into my, into, in my interactions with others by harboring this thought. If I have the thought I'm a bad person and I go out into the world and try to act in a skillful way, I hesitate because I'm not sure I'm a good person, right? And so it's not about being delusional and deciding you're good after all, regardless of what you do, but rather instead of having a belief and shaping yourself around that belief, you measure yourself based on your actions. Actions are what make up our karmic results. So by being good, by being skillful, that determines my worth, right? Which means that's something that we can all do. We're not, we're not set in our ways. The Buddha teaches us that karma means that we're able to change from this moment onward, that this moment we're sitting in right here is a mixture of past, but also present karma. Right now, we're creating ourselves, which means that in applying not-self, we can decide what parts of us we can cast aside, what stories, what narratives we can set aside because they're not useful. That can be a powerful message that we can take into our meditations as well. I know a lot of people that come to sit and meditate and so many thoughts come up to their minds. And they're so convinced that like, oh, I have a noisy mind. Well, there's thoughts. And those thoughts you can sift through and see which ones are actually useful to the meditation and which ones can be set aside. And if you do that enough times, eventually you have a, a, a handful of skillful thoughts that will send you into a direction where the thoughts settle down entirely. You have solid concentration where the mind is not wavering. But it's done through that careful sifting. The Buddha said so himself, that he sifted through his actions, which includes his thoughts, the same way, looking at what was skillful. Which means that if not-self is some goal that we work towards, on the way to liberation, we give up any sense of self entirely, which means that once we come to uh, unbinding, we have let go of any kind of conceit. We've done it through this way, which means that we've had uh, more and more rarefied states of becoming, which means we've had more and more rarefied states of who we are in, in our lives, internally as well as externally. So, you know, it, this might be a strange talk in the sense that it's a mixture of the Dharma 
and also a mixture of psychotherapy, but perhaps not so strange because it seems like it's quite popular these days to mix the two. Some people even see them as kind of the same. That the idea of reparenting or self-parenting might be in its way its own form of what the Buddha said about becoming a friend to oneself. But we need that friendship. We need to be a friend to ourselves. We need to be kind to our minds. I think to those people, including myself, who have sat down to meditate and get mad at themselves, get frustrated because their meditation isn't going the way they want it to. And then extending beyond that, when they actually go out into the world and try to practice the Eightfold Path and go about their interpersonal relationships and try to act skillfully and have a skillful sense of livelihood, uh, and the same thing happens. There's this frustration. And that frustration we can look at and see, well, how much of that am I responsible for? The interpersonal part is interesting because that means that you can truly be harmless and blameless in your own actions. And it still might be the case that people don't like you. In fact, there's certain kinds of people that absolutely don't like people who are developing this path, who are trying to be harmless. They might think of us as sanctimonious or self-righteous or uptight. You're the guy that goes to the party and doesn't drink. You're the guy that hangs out with friends and doesn't dance or do something reckless. You're the one who goes to someone's house and everyone's gossiping and you don't gossip. You know, those kind of things people notice. And certain people will see that and find you admirable. They'll see that and go, that's a good person right there. But there are also other people out there, and some of those people might even be your own family, who go, what's wrong with that guy? And if we take those stories in, if we let ourselves be shaped by those stories, then we do grasp onto them, cling to them, make them I, make them me, make them mine. We turn that into our story. We turn it into our voice. And then, just like my teacher when he was young, beginning in his path, we sit down and think, oh, why am I like this? The truth is you aren't like that at all, you know? All of us, if we're even, you know, the fact that we're even here right now, those of us up here, those of us over there, those of us watching, you know, uh, now or in the future, we're here because we've sought refuge. We're here because we care about how we feel on the inside and how we affect others. We are looking for a, a measure of safety a measure of protection. We are looking for happiness. And it's good that we are. It's admirable that we are. And so that means that in, in championing ourselves and being that, that figure for ourselves and observing our behavior, we have to commend ourselves for that and encourage ourselves in that. The Buddha himself was a major encourager of his students. You know, aside from his actual instruction, like it wasn't a philosophy course all the time. A lot of the time, what he was doing with his students was encouraging them, them to keep practicing, to keep going. You know, when he was talking to students who thought they were done, they were giving up because they couldn't go anymore. They felt listless, they felt useless, they felt like their practice was dead. They're sitting in the forest, meditating, and nothing's happening. And the Buddha would appear to students like that. And he wouldn't give them some long discourse, sometimes he would if it was appropriate, but sometimes he would tell them just the, the little bit of encouragement that they needed to hear to sit back down and try again and keep trying. You know, it's often said in the West that, 
you know, the only way you fail is by not getting up again and trying again. The only time you fail is when you give up. And that's true on this path that we're on. You know, this path, for some people, it can seem very quick. They start right away and have results right away, and it seems like they're so much wiser than us and so much better put together than us. And for some of us, it seems like a lifelong thing. You know, you, you keep going and going, and, and you wonder if, if, you're, if you're getting anywhere. On the practical end, if that's happening, maybe it's time to switch up the practice and try new things, get more momentum again. But on the other side, some of that internal dialogue is just that. It's internal dialogue. It's a story that we tell ourselves. And we have the ability to change the story, even if it's just inside. And it's important that we do that inside, because the story that we tell ourselves is the story we tell everyone else. What we have inside is what we have to offer out. So we start inside. We start with this sense of goodwill for ourselves. When I am the one that leads the metta meditation, you'll notice that I talk about the unburdening of the heart, a heart that's free, a heart that's light. And those, that goes back all the way to the beginning of the Dhammapada, when the Buddha talks about the nature of the mind, which is also the nature of the heart. We can have a burdened mind, a burdened heart, that feels like we're dragging a cart behind us. Who can imagine how much weight is in that cart? We're just dragging it, dragging it, dragging it. It's so hard. But then we can also lighten the burden of the mind and heart so that it feels light. And then the Buddha talks about it as if it were a shadow. You don't even have to think about what you're carrying. And so that's the, the sincere wish that I develop for myself. I want that for myself, to have a heart that's that free, that that's light, that, that, that is that easy to carry. And it, it's in wanting that for myself and developing that for myself that shapes my interactions with others, that I can take that out. And when I have that sincere wish for other people, even the ones that are hard to get along with, that determines my actions. That determines my skillfulness so that I make sure that as I talk to them, as I interact with them, as I cohabitate, live alongside with them, it's with that determination, with that intention. And that makes so much difference. And I can hope for them in really tough times that they too eventually have a heart that is also unburdened. If I am seeking to realize these truths for myself, I hope that in the future they can realize that as well. So that's, that's my, my complex talk that was a mixture of things. I wanted to talk about some of this anyway, and then halfway through the week I realized it was Father's Day, so that gave birth to the other part. But I hope I said something that was useful. I've said this before, and I'll often, I think, say it again, which is this talk was meant to encourage, to inspire, to do the very thing that we need to do, which is to take what we hear and put it into practice to develop the path that the Buddha encouraged us to practice. So I hope that that's what you are able to take away from the talk. More encouragement, because it really can help us to think of the Dhamma that way. Yeah, thank you. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.